Hey guys and welcome to the next episode of the Shane Walsh Fitness Podcast. So today is episode 197 and today is a very, very special episode. I'm truly humbled and honoured to have Dr. Judd Brewer on the podcast today. And Dr. Judd Brewer is a New York Times bestselling author, neuroscientist, addiction psychiatrist and thought leader in the field of habit change. He is also the Director of Research and Innovation at Brown University's Mindfulness Center, Executive Medical Director of Behavioral Sciences ShareCare Incorporated as well, and a research affiliate at MIT. Dr. Judd has developed and tested novel mindfulness programs for habit change, including treatments for smoking, emotional eating, and anxiety. His brand new book, called Unwinding Anxiety, Train Your Brain to Heal Your Mind, is out now, and I would highly recommend it if you're involved or you have want to do a little bit more research into the likes of anxiety and that side of things, I would highly recommend getting it. So you can follow Dr. Joe Brewer on Instagram. Uh, He has a couple of apps as well called Unwinding Anxiety, Eat Right Now and Craving to Quit. And I'll put those in the show notes so you guys can have a look at it as well. And he has a free anxiety resource, which I'll put into the show notes as well. So we're going to be talking about anxiety. We're going to talk about is anxiety needed to perform at a high level or is it a myth? We're also going to talk about how can you talk about anxiety and become a habit? And is it hidden behind unhealthy habits? We talk about kind of hacking their brain's reward systems and this could really help be helpful for someone who's potentially emotional eating or craving. We talk about the the, the big two key components in the process of unwinding anxiety. And we talk about simple exercises about kind of easing anxiety out there as well. This is an amazing episode. I was truly honoured and t- truly humbled to have Dr. Joel Brewer on as a, as a leading expert in, in this field. So I hope you guys enjoy the episode with uh, Dr. Joel Brewer. Dr. Brewer, thank you so much for coming on today. Thanks for having me. So Dr. Brewer, I know I did a brief intro for yourself, all fair, but I'm going to get you to give us a little bit of a brief background, how you kind of got into this field and how you kind of came up with the ideas for the three amazing apps that you've kind of, you've kind of created and helped create over the last little while. Well, it started uh, with my own suffering. You know, I'd like to say, you know, there's this 10,000 hour rule. I, I surpassed that in terms of suffering. I'm sure many people do. And I'm, many people have certainly worse suffering than I've had in my life. But in, uh, I, I was really stressed out at the beginning of medical school. And I started meditating my first day of medical school and was just doing a bunch of practice, learning how my own mind worked, realizing that I had no idea how my mind worked. And, you know, fast forward... I, eight years, I finished my, you know, after I finished my MD, PhD program, I was in my psychiatry residency, trying to figure out what I wanted to do for my own research career. I'd done a bunch of work with like stress and the immune system, mostly in animal models, so molecular biology, but I really wanted to do things that were applicable to humans. And at that point, you know, I was really seeing how this mindfulness training stuff was really helpful for me. (laughs) So so I started, I decided to become an addiction psychiatrist and specialize in addictions. And that led me to really delving deeply into trying to understand how habits form and also realizing that there aren't very good treatments for addictions. There aren't even very good treatments for habits. And in fact, we've been overlooking something that's been out there in science for a long time around how habits form. And the stuff I was learning around mindfulness training was suggesting that we could actually tap right into that process. So I dove in and started researching it in my lab. You know, we, we did a study with smoking, for example. We've got five times the quit rates of gold standard treatment. Oh, wow. And as we were doing those studies, and we're doing some neurobiological studies, scanning um, meditators' brains to see how their brains were different than non-meditators, and all of that started coming together. 
And I, I was working in my office. Uh, it, I was at a hospital where in my outpatient clinic, you know, it's a smoke-free campus. And, you know, I'd look out the window and my patients were out smoking in the parking lot, right? And so I realized, you know, this whole system, the survival system that sets up habits is set up to help us remember a certain behavior in a context. And so it's actually artificial to bring my patients into my office to try to help them quit smoking because they don't learn to smoke in my office. They don't learn to overeat in my office. They don't learn to get anxious in my office, hopefully. (laughs) (laughs) So I, you know, we started exploring this idea around, can we package my office and deliver it to people in context, you know, and this is where, you know, back in the day we did this, started this about 10 years ago. This is when, you know, Android phone looked like a huge, you know, big, big block with the calculator. Yeah. Yeah. So we were, we were starting really early on when people were never thinking about an, you know, a smartphone as a way to deliver treatment, but it was nice to get in early. And since then, you know, we've, we've had a bunch of really positive clinical trials, you know, our eat right now app, we got a 40% reduction in craving related eating. And we can even work out the mechanisms where we just published a paper from my lab showing that with one of the tools in the eat right now app, it can actually help people change the reward value of overeating in their brains. So it's a whole different mechanism than what's classically used, which is the willpower based approach. So that's, that's kind of how I got into it. Never expecting to get into this field, but it's been a fascinating journey. You mentioned a lot of things there. I think the two things, particularly for someone who works with people, particularly with kind of like trying to change habits and work with them on kind of like small little steps and baby steps along the way. But you also mentioned about kind of food and the reward systems in the brain. Can you kind of talk about those and how you kind of change and kind of rewire or almost rejig things and then the app and stuff like that? Yeah, I'd be happy to. So you know, I, I'm first going to contrast this to what's, what's typically out there. So you think of the willpower-based approach, which is to, you know, this formula we've known forever. If somebody wants to lose weight, for example, eat salad and instead of cake, right? Yeah. Or uh, just get out there and exercise. Um, if you're anxious, you know, just tell yourself to stop worrying about something, you know? So it'd be great if we could just do that because then my patients could come into my office and I could say, just stop overeating, just stop smoking, just stop worrying. It'd be one visit, we'd be done, they'd be, they'd be saved, they'd be healed, <laughs> and I could go on to help other people. You know, it doesn't work that way. So a couple of points here, maybe from a neuroscience perspective, you know, willpower at best is more myth than muscle. So we like to think that it's just something we need to build up more, but the neuroscience is suggesting that it's probably not as good as we think that it is. It, it's, it's a great story, but that story is not actually a true story. And if you look at the parts of the brain that are involved in cognitive control, the prefrontal cortex, for example, it's the youngest and the weakest part of our brain from an evolutionary perspective. It is the first part of the brain that goes offline when we get stressed out. I, I learned in residency training, uh, this this acronym HALT, you might have heard it, hungry, yeah. angry, lonely, tired, right? That's when my patients are most vulnerable to relapse. And that's when anybody is most vulnerable to falling back into an old habit, you know, and ironically, hungry, you know, if your old habit is overeating, that's not a good combination. <laughs> so I just want to highlight that as a starting point that, you know, that's the starting point for a lot of these things. What I decided to do instead was to look at how the neuroscience of the brain works. And our brains, 
You know, our brains learn habits, any habit, smoking, overeating, even worrying can be learned as a habit. All of these are formed through reward-based learning, meaning the behavior will get perpetuated based on how rewarding it is, not the behavior itself, right? That's why the just stop it mentality doesn't work. So we started zooming in on reward. How do we get people to change? Well, you can't artificially change the taste of cake. Cake tastes good. There's no, you know, you can't change that. But what you can do is bring awareness to see how rewarding it is to eat cake. For example, how much and when. So, uh, so with this, for example, with our Eat Right Now app, we really bring people in to help them, you know, help them understand how their minds work and help them bring awareness in as they're caught up in an eating behavior. So for example, if somebody overeats, we have this craving tool in the app that helps them pay attention as they overeat so they can start to see that cause and effect relationship. When they overeat, they see, oh, it's not as rewarding as I remembered, as in they ha- generally don't pay attention when they overeat uh, until it's way, you know, way after yeah. that. So they can start to see that cause and effect relationship it, ready for this? It only takes 10 to 15 times of somebody really paying attention as they see that overeating doesn't feel that good for that reward value to drop below zero and they start to change their behavior. 10 to 15 times. You know, it, it's not like they have to work at this for 20 years. 10 to 15 times, which makes a lot of sense because from a neurobiologics perspective, our brains have to be adaptive and plastic really, you know, we've got to adapt quickly. You don't have 20 times to be chased by the saber-toothed tiger to decide that it's a dangerous thing, you know, our ancient ancestors. So all of this fits beautifully with the neuroscience and highlights one key thing, which is awareness is necessary and potentially sufficient to change behavior. Because when you see that something's not rewarding, you're going to naturally become disenchanted with it. And that's, that's really the key that we've been exploring. We see this with eating. You know, as I mentioned, the studies we've done, we can even see this with anxiety, with worry. We got a 57% reduction in worry in a study we did with anxious physicians. We got a 67% reduction in anxiety, in these validated anxiety scores in people with generalized anxiety disorder. So people with severe anxiety. So here we, and we can, you know, show how it links to the mechanism we can see how this works and we can target the specific mechanism and we can show that it works really well when we target mechanism. That's amazing. And you, you mentioned the word anxiety. And I think it's one of those things I don't think is fully understood by an awful lot of people. And I know it's becoming a lot more prevalent now that both people are like openly talking about how they feel and which is an amazing thing. And I encourage everyone to do that. Can you explain like what is anxiety? And is there a difference to, like difference in the amount of people that have anxiety between females and males? And if there is, why? Sure, I'd be happy to to talk about that. So anxiety was something that I didn't really understand. I didn't realize at the end of college, I had probably anxiety that was enough that was uh, leading to something called irritable bowel syndrome, where, you know, basically my GI tract was saying, Hey, you're anxious, pay attention. And I'm going to, I'm going to make you pay attention because I'm going to make this pretty uncomfortable for you (laughs) in terms of, I won't go into the detail, Um, (laughs) but I actually write about it a bit about that in, in my unwinding anxiety book, just highlighting how I didn't even know that I was anxious myself. So Anxiety, you can think of the standard definition, a feeling of nervousness or worry or unease about an imminent event or something with an uncertain outcome. So there's this feeling of worry. 
But if you look at it, and and this goes back to the 1980s, there was some research suggesting that worry can not only be a feeling, but it can also be a mental behavior. So I, I feel worried and I worry. And sometimes these can actually feed on each other. So I have patients who they wake up anxious and then they start worrying about why they're anxious, right? And that worry feeds back and makes them more anxious. And so that in itself can actually uh, drive a cycle of anxiety and worry. Uh, And in fact, that's the cycle that we target with this Unwinding Anxiety app that we developed. And what about kind of the the difference in in the genders as well? Is it more prevalent in females or is it more prevalent in males or is there a polarity between the two? Well, there's certainly a lot in both sexes. Uh, and I, if I, if I remember correctly, I believe there's a higher prevalence in, in females. I'm not sure that it's known why, uh, but I, if I remember correctly, it, it is slightly higher in females. Amazing. And like, why do you think that some people are better able to cope with say the anxiety that the feelings that they have, like you mentioned there, the perfect example of someone who wakes up anxious, then tries to turn off the thoughts when you know, you can't turn off negative thoughts when it's better to diffuse them. What is like, why do some people cope with it better than others? You know, that's a million euro question. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so we don't know exactly why, but my lab has actually just collected some data suggesting that there are different, uh, different psychological phenotypes that people have. And one, it, one suggestion, and we're studying this more, is that some people, they kind of avoid there's this thing called experiential avoidance. So if there's something unpleasant, they're more likely to avoid those unpleasant sensations, especially if they're emotions and body sensations. Whereas other people are more aware of them and more kind of willing to to look at them or, or explore them. And with that, that experiential avoidance may make it, you know, if somebody runs away from a problem, that problem is going to run after them. as compared to somebody turning to face the problem. So my guess is, you know, that experiential avoidance may make it harder for some people to deal with anxiety. And knowing that uh, is really helpful because then we can help educate people and help people understand and learn to turn toward it rather than, than run away so that they may benefit from treatment. That's amazing. And one of the big things that kind of comes up, like we live in a world where a lot of people are on the go, go, go. I think COVID's kind of hopefully taught people how to chill, chill, chill a little bit. But when people are trying to be high performers or trying to kind of climb that corporate ladder, can you kind of clear up the myth about kind of anxiety and being needed to perform at a higher level? Because that's one of the big things. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I devoted a, a whole section in my book to this because it is such a misconception out there. So long story short, this goes back to the early 1900s. 1908, these researchers did a study, I'm not kidding, with Japanese dancing mice. And they found, yeah, they I found that find they, them. <laughs> I, I have no idea. I didn't know there were such a thing as Japanese dancing mice, but they, they apparently were doing experiments with them. And what they found was that if they shock them a medium amount, uh, like kind of a, with a medium level of shock, like not too little, kind of like Goldilocks, you know, not too little, not too much. Um, they're more likely to perform well in a, in a maze task, I think is what they used. And that arousal. So they concluded, Oh, you know, higher, you know, a perfect amount of arousal is going to get, 
get some animal to do a task well, which makes sense. If you're asleep, you're not going to perform well. If you're totally freaked out, you're not going to perform well. So in the 1950s, somebody extended this to anxiety and without evidence, but uh, they were doing more, they were doing rat experiments and they were saying, oh, anxiety must be like this as well. And some guy made a, give a talk about this and he said, oh, anxiety is like this. So notice they were, they started interchanging anxiety with arousal, not the same, very, not the same. These are very different things. Yet that memes took off somewhere in around the year 2000, probably around the time when the internet was, you know, getting going and people are doing searches on, you know, performance anxiety to the point where, you know, this first paper was cited 10 times in a hundred years. And then it was cited like over a hundred or over a thousand times uh, within the next 10 years. It just went exponential, you know, in terms of people saying, oh, you know, anxiety must be good for performance. In fact, when you look at the research, anxiety actually decreases performance, which makes a lot of sense because when you're anxious, you can't think, you can't perform well. So a lot of people, they have this fallacy. Our brains love to make uh, correlations and think that they're causal connections when they're not, it's not true. My old PhD mentor used to call this true, true, and unrelated. Is somebody anxious? True. Are they performing well? True. But does anxiety actually causally make them perform well? No, it's, it, there, there's no causal connection that's, that's made there. It's just a correlation. So you can think of this as correlation does not equal causation. So people think, well, I'm anxious and I perform well. And they start to think, oh, I need to be anxious to perform well. But it's probably more of a mind's rationalization <laughs> for, for having been anxious. Because if they look at it, if they look at their experience, it's not true. Anxiety is, is inversely correlated with performance. And if you look, there are tons of examples, especially in athletes, of performance. Like people that perform well, they're not anxious. I, I love examples like Michael Jordan, you know, uh, this NBA star. You know, if you just look at his tongue as a measure of anxiety, you know, how far it's hanging out of his mouth when he's dunking on people and doing it, having a 60-point game, you know, not anxious. Uh, Usain Bolt, right? Huge grin on his face as he's crushing the competition. Uh, Chloe Kim, this uh, – uh, she's a uh, – 2018 Olympics, uh, she won the gold medal in the half pipe, right? So a snowboarder. She just, she was totally in the flow. If you watch her, her runs, it's just electrifying, right? All of that suggests being in flow, being in the zone leads to optimal performance and anxiety is not anywhere in the equation when people are performing well. I love that example. I think there was one recently with the the Italian soccer team. The captain was messing around before the penalty shootout against Spain. And I think kind of calmed down the rest of the team. And that kind of was the purpose of it. Just kind of chill me out, lads. We've got this. We're happy out. You talk about in the in the book about talk about how anxiety can become a habit. Can you kind of talk about this in a little bit more detail? Because I think this will help an awful lot of people, I think. Yeah, this is actually the impetus for me to write this whole book because I didn't learn this in medical school or residency. And it, this was probably one of the, the most important things that I learned in terms of helping my own patients with anxiety. You know, I used to think, oh, prescribe a medication. <laughs> but but if, if you look at the literature, uh, there's this term in medicine called number needed to treat. So I need to treat just over five patients. So 5.2 is that number needed to treat for the best medications we have, which means I treat five patients, one person shows a significant benefit. Okay, so I'm basically playing the medication lottery there. I don't know which is going to benefit and what I'm going to do with the other 
with our Unwinding Anxiety app, for example, that number needed to treat was 1.6, okay? Okay, and, and the reason that it works well is because we can actually target anxiety at its core around this habit. So any habit is formed through three elements, a trigger, a behavior, and a result, okay? So think of it, our ancient ancestors, they needed to remember where food is. So when they saw food, there's the trigger, they'd eat the food, there's the behavior, and then their stomach would send this dopamine signal to their brain that said, remember what you ate and where you found it. So from a brain standpoint, that's a reward, but that's the result that says, hey, you know, this is a good thing, do it again, right? So that's how any habit is formed. With anxiety, anxiety, that feeling of anxiety can be a trigger, then the behavior is worrying. You start worrying about what's wrong or maybe we're in danger or maybe somebody's going to get, you know, somebody's going to get hurt or whatever in the future. Remember, anxiety is about this fear of the future, basically. So worries that mental behavior. And then the result is this feeling of control or at least this feeling like we're doing something, right? You know, it's, it's really unpleasant to sit back, know that you have no control over something happening and not knowing what the outcome is. So, Somebody can sit back and they can at least worry about something and feel like they're, they're doing something and it feels productive. And that's the rewarding aspect that feeds back and says, okay, next time you feel anxious, worry again. And that starts to set up this vicious cycle. Is that inherited or is it kind of your, it's just, it's ingrained in you? Like, do you kind of say if you're watching your parents kind of running around and getting anxious and stuff, is that, are you watching them and picking that up as a habit or is it kind of one of these things that's kind of genetic? I would guess that there are some genetic components to like distress tolerance and anxiety yeah. propensity and things like that. But there is certainly a huge amount of evidence showing that we learn things uh, that are modeled by others, especially by our parents. And th- the other thing there that I think about is, well, even if something is genetic, we don't have control over our genes, at least right now. Uh, <laughs> but we do have control over recognizing what we've learned and knowing that if we've learned something, we can unlearn it. That's amazing. I think that's a big sentence there. Um, so, and you mentioned also in the book about kind of like sometimes anxiety can hide in unhealthy habits, like emotional eating. Why is that? And what can we do to kind of tweak that? Because I think the emotional eating thing is, I think there's like a 60% increase in, in binge eating amongst men in, in kind of Ireland and England over over the lockdown period and stuff like that. So why does sometimes anxiety hide in unhealthy habits like that? Well, it, I've seen this, you know, they, what did they call this? The quarantine 15, where people were gaining 15 pounds yeah. and then they had to update it to the quarantine 30 <laughs> because you know the pandemic was happening much longer than people expected it to. So if you think of the same habit loop, anxiety, because it's unpleasant, will drive people to eat, especially if they're working from home or if they're in quarantine. So they have ready access to food and we can, there's a reason the food, some foods are called comfort food, right? Food distracts us. It makes us feel better. It gives us a temporary relief where we're, you know, numbs. One of my patients described her binge eating as numbing herself. That was the reward that she was getting. So whether we overeat, whether we binge eat, whether we just stress eat or snack, all of those can become unhealthy habits that are all driven by anxiety. And then because they feel better than the anxiety, they feed back and perpetuate that cycle. And that's an amazing answer. Yeah, when people talk about the numbing sensation that food can give, it kind of just, and some people can kind of almost um, black out. They're not, they're, they, they don't understand what's going on. They kind of have an outer body experience. And it's, it's very, very, um, it's very unique 
each person's um, disorder and condition with that kind of stuff as well. So if people are listening to this, please, please go and do and talk just to a professional on that side of things. You talk about kind of hacking your brain's reward system as well. Are the, the steps the same or different depending on the habit or what, what's the situation there? The nice thing is that the steps are the same and they're relatively simple. So there's one key ingredient for all of these things. And I actually highlight this. So our Unwinding Anxiety app is built on this three-step process. And actually my whole book, uh, the Unwinding Anxiety book is also built on that as well. The first step is just mapping out a habit loop. What's the trigger? What's the behavior? What's the result? And in fact, anybody can do this. I do this with my patients the first time I meet them. You know, so we start mapping out their behaviors regardless of what the habit is. Uh, and then after that, and actually we put out a free habit map where anybody can download a PDF from mapmyhabit.com. Um, so they can just, you know, anybody can map these out. That's the first step. That takes awareness, right? So awareness is the key ingredient there. The second step is this brain hacking piece. We touched on it a little bit is about, you know, and this is about how yeah. we perpetuate habits based on how rewarding the behavior is. So the key here is bringing awareness in again and asking ourselves after we've done a behavior or while we're doing it, what am I getting from this? So not, not from an intellectual standpoint, like, oh, I know I shouldn't overeat or I shouldn't smoke or I shouldn't eat sugar or I shouldn't worry, but it's really about feeling into their direct experience and seeing what the result is. You know, when I worry, how does it feel in my body? When I overeat, how does it feel in my body? So that their brain can get that direct connection and see that cause and effect relationship. When I overeat, I feel like crap. When I worry, I get more anxious, for example. And that helps us become disenchanted with the behavior. It's not about willpower. It's not about force. It's simply about awareness. Like, oh, this isn't doing it for me, right? The simplest example, I love this. When I work with somebody that's trying to quit smoking, I just have them pay attention as they smoke a cigarette. And they... They come back and they're like, how did I not notice this before? This thing tastes like crap. You know? <laughs> so there's a great example of becoming disenchanted with the behavior. The third step, I call this finding the BBO, the bigger, better offer. So if our brain is set up based on how rewarding a behavior is, we got to give it something better, especially for becoming disenchanted with the old behavior. Now here, awareness itself or that curiosity component, when we're really curious about something, that can be rewarding unto itself. So for example, if we're feeling anxious, what I, what I train people to do in, in our Unwinding Anxiety app does this as well, is to help them get curious about what those sensations are in their body that tell them that they are anxious. Now, you tell me, you know, pop quiz, what feels better for you, anxiety or curiosity? Curiosity feels better than anxiety. Yeah, it is a no-brainer. Yeah. I've never had anybody say, oh, give me more, more anxiety. Yeah. More anxious, anxiety. please. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So curiosity is something that we all have. It's free. It's just a matter of tapping into it. And the more we can tap into curiosity, the more it helps us step out of these old habit loops. And that's really the key in that third step is how can we step out of an old habit loop and not just replace some, you know, one habit with another? You've mentioned willpower a couple of times, and I know that there's um, research from like Kelly McGonagall is probably the, the big name that's attached to it, like the likes of willpower and stuff. I know there's, there's, um, there was research recently done on that willpower isn't a finite resource. Where do you stand on that side of things? Is it finite or is it not finite or is it kind of like it needs more research? 
Well, if you look at the research on willpower or ego depletion, so for example, some of the, there's been tons of studies on willpower depletion or ego depletion, depending on you know, same different names for the same thing. Those studies, are, there was a meta-analysis suggesting that they're roughly 50-50. So about 50% of them said that it was beneficial, that it was true, and 50% of them said it wasn't true. If you approach this from a neuroscience standpoint, if you look at it from a cognitive neuroscience standpoint, willpower doesn't actually factor into uh, cognitive control from a neuroscience perspective. So it may be more of a heuristic where it's like, oh, here's a concept that makes sense and we can explain that we feel like we've got willpower, you know, and we've got uh, willpower depletion at the end of the day, for example, but it may just be an explanatory heuristic and what suggests that that's the case is not only animal studies where you, you know, there is no such, you know, you don't really look at, you can't really measure, you know, is this, is this rat, you know, have strong willpower or not, but you can also look at the equivocality of these studies. So if a concept is not, is just more of a concept and not actually something you can measure, you would expect to get about a 50, 50 result with the, with the studies. And that's exactly what the field is finding. So if you want to take, I, I don't take a, I take a somewhat agnostic view, you know, people, people can believe what they want. If you want to take a strictly neuroscience perspective, they suggest, and even a philosophy perspective. So philosophers suggest that there's no such thing as willpower. There's no such thing as free will, things like that. If you take the, the philosophers and the neuroscientists probably agree. If you look at the animal behaviors and the, and the cognitive neuroscientists, uh, cognitive control doesn't really willpower doesn't factor into cognitive control. We do have cognitive control, but it's a different thing. It's not about willpower. If you take the other end of the spectrum where you say, okay, willpower is definitely a thing, then people are probably going to be fighting for the next 10 years as half the studies suggest that it might be the case and half the studies suggest that it might not be the case. And if that continues, that actually probably gives more evidence to the fact that it's more of an explanatory, you know, it's more of a story that's a good story but more, more myth than, than reality. Amazing. I love that. And that's a, that's a great little kind of like a, a recap at the end there. You, meant, you kind of mentioned the two main components in the process of unwinding anxiety. One is curiosity and one is kindness. Can you kind of expand on these kind of two main elements, please? Yeah. So some of the biggest habits that I see as kind of echo habits on top of uh, other habits. So let's say that somebody overeats, you know, and there's that habit of overeating. They might overeat or binge eat or worry and then judge themselves for not being able to stop the behavior. And so there's this echo habit loop on top of that where, you know, the, the lack of control triggers them to judge themselves. Okay. And that becomes its own habit. Well, if you look at judgments like self-judgment, anger, frustration, and even anxiety, they all share a characteristic of experience where it feels closed down. It feels contracted. Okay. We've, my lab's done studies on this pretty universal. Uh, people will say, yes, anxiety feels contracted, frustration feels contracted. Uh, if you look at the other end of the spectrum, uh, kindness, curiosity, connection, for example, they all feel open and expanded. And so here I think of, you know, you think of these, these uh, third step processes that are these bigger, better offers. Feeling open feels better than feeling closed and it's more rewarding. We've done studies on that and almost universally people say, yeah, it feels better to feel open. Uh, you know, for example, curiosity, kindness, connection, they feel better than anxiety and self-judgment. 
So I think of there's this overlap between kindness and curiosity. I think of those as these two main buckets that can help people move into these, these bigger, better offers as sharing this qualitative experience of being open, of being, you know, being expanded. And if you think of anxiety, for example, being closed, you can't be closed and open at the same time. And so here you can inject some curiosity if you're anxious and start to open that up. If you're judging yourself, you can inject a little bit of kindness and start to open that up. And so that's where I think of kindness and curiosity being these superpowers that kind of help us open to our experience rather than get more, you know, more balled up, more contracted in, you know, whatever habit loop we're stuck in. You mentioned mindfulness at the beginning. You mentioned mindfulness there. Why do you think people are so reluctant to go down that route? Because it is, some people may think it's like one of these buzz terms that's being kind of thrown around now and all the kind of wishy-washy, they're going to turn into the Buddha, all this kind of stuff. Why do you, why do you think so many people are, are like afraid to kind of go or reluctant to go down that route of the mindfulness mentality? Well, I think you've, you've already highlighted one aspect of it is that it's, you know, it's a mindfulness is a buzzword these days. People are marketing it for all sorts of purposes, beneficial and not so beneficial, you know, for capitalizing on it basically. And it can be, you know, it can be understood in very different ways. So here, I think people are reluctant because it's like, what is this? And it has these roots and, you know, is this about rainbows and unicorns and, you know, stuff like that. Um, so here we can actually, we can sidestep some of that by saying, what is, what is mindfulness about? Well, the core elements of mindfulness are basically awareness and this attitude of curiosity. So we can place the word and the concept of mindfulness off to the side. And we can just say, how do you change any behavior? Well, you got to be aware of it and you got to be open. Uh, and that openness it, in itself can be more rewarding than being stuck in the habit. So I think people are reluctant partly because, you know, there are different, there are different takes on what mindfulness is, their misunderstandings, there might be preconceptions around it. And so we can actually push all that off to the side and just say, well, what's the neuroscience say around changing a habit, you know, awareness and curiosity, rinse and repeat. And it simplifies things quite a bit. Uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's amazing. I think it is kind of like, it. I think, as you said, in, in the middle of that was some people are using it to kind of sell certain things when they may not necessarily have the, the main core practice in the middle of it. Um, what are some of the main exercises, simple exercises that someone can do at home right now with in relation to kind of easing anxiety? for themselves because there's a lot of stuff out there. There's a lot of noise out there, but what are the kind of the, the, the most effective tools that you've seen with your own clients? One of my favorites right now is called five finger breathing. And I have a YouTube video up that explains it a bit more, but basically if somebody's really anxious, they've got to be able to ground themselves in that moment or they won't be able to use their thinking brain. They won't be able to make a step forward. Five finger breathing is great. It's basically you, you're tracing a finger with the finger of the, of the dominant finger of the other hand. So for example, uh, as somebody's, as I'm taking an in breath, I would take the index finger of one hand and put it at the base of my pinky on the other hand. And I would trace up my finger as I breathe in, pause at the top of my pinky. And then as I breathe out, I'd trace down the other side, you know, and then, you know, trace out my ring finger as I take a breath. So basically over the course of five breaths, 
I've not only paid attention to my breathing, but I've also paid attention to the felt sensation on two different hands. And I've also used, uh, paid attention visually watching my hand uh, as I trace my hands. So that's four things that I have to pay attention to at once. My breath, physical sensations on two hands, and the visual um, aspect of that. That basically takes up all my working memory in my brain right? You can't pay attention to more than about four things at once. When I do that, what that does is it crowds out all these worry thoughts. And also after five or 10 breaths where, where I've really paid attention, I'm more likely to be less anxious than I was before those 10 breaths. And then uh, as I calm my physiology, it not only allows my brain to come back on and, and start thinking, but also if those anxious thought com thoughts come back in, there's now a mismatch in arousal level. So my physiology is less aroused, but those thoughts, they come in at this high energy. And if there's a mismatch, it's easier to just notice those as thoughts and say, oh, there's an anxious thought and let it go. As compared to if I'm feeling anxious and I'm thinking anxious, those two start to play off of each other and can feed on each other. So we can actually break that cycle of thoughts, feeling and fueling, you know, feeding uh, anxiety feelings and then the feelings fueling the thoughts. We can break that cycle when we calm the physiology down uh, and are able to then, you know, really more easily see the thoughts and let them go. Can you turn off negative thoughts or can you, can you just use them? Like what is the actual truth? You know, I don't think there's evidence suggesting that you can turn off negative thoughts. There have been tons of psychological experiments. You know, the classic one is don't think of the white bear. Yeah. You know, <laughs> and the more we try to suppress that thought, the more it sticks around and, and jumps in. Yeah. So I don't think there's evidence that we can actually turn off negative thoughts. Again, it'd be great if we could. My patients would be happy to be able to just turn off those negative thoughts. It doesn't work that way. Um, I'm like... Because I know there's a saying of like uh, negative thoughts are like Velcro and positive thoughts are like Teflon. They just slide off. Why does the brain go towards the negative a little bit more? It's a good question. I don't know the exact neuroscience for that, but I would guess it has, if you think back to the evolutionary function, yeah. you know, it's, it's helpful to remember what's dangerous <laughs> you know? because you're more likely to die if you don't remember those as compared to if you forget what's not dangerous, you know? And so there's more leeway in saying, oh yeah, that was, that was a good thing, you know, as compared to, was that really dangerous? You know, now we're dead. Yeah. I, I think that's it. Cause the, 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 the bit that Dr. Brewer was talking about is kind of saber tooth tiger. That's where that whole thing kind of comes from. Uh, fight or flight mode. Um, the last question I'm going to ask you is in relation to kind of like, say the, the, you brought up smoking and you, you work with clients that are kind of like looking to kind of quit smoking. Is it better to go cold turkey or is it kind of better to ease off? It really depends on the person, to be honest. I've had people who want it. They're just gung-ho. They're ready. They think that that's the best way for them to do it. And so they're quick cold turkey and I'll give them some tools to work with the cravings in, in that time or maybe give them, you know, sometimes you can get some nicotine replacement to help. So that can be helpful for some people. For others, they would rather wean themselves off. So for example, with our Craving to Quit program, we uh, give people, they can program in a quit date. And what it does is it will calculate based on the number of cigarettes they're smoking on a daily basis. It'll help them slowly cut down the cigarettes so that they can start to wean their body of that nicotine dependence naturally. So both can work. It really depends on the person. 
Amazing. And I know you, I know uh, you've got the incredible new book out on why anxiety train your brain to heal your mind. Where can people find out about that? Where can people find out about your free anxiety resource as well and your social media? We've got, I've got a website uh, that has you know, information on all of those things. Uh, just drjud.com, drjud.com. And then my Twitter handle is at Judd Brewer, J-U-D-B-R-E-W-E-R. And my Instagram handle is Dr period judge AUD. Uh, so folks can find me there. Amazing. So guys, if you want to get uh, Dr. Uh, Brewer's book, I would highly recommend just going onto the show notes, click a link and there's, I'll put in the links for the apps as well. The Unwinding Anxiety app, the Eat Right Now app and the Craving to Quit app. And you guys can have a look at those and have a look at the free anxiety resource as well. Uh, Dr. Brewer, thank you so much for your time. Like so, so, so helpful. And I hope guys enjoyed the episodes. Thank you so much, Dr. Brewer. My pleasure.